Hear now the word of the Lord. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the lair. And Saul sought to pin David into the wall with a spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away, and he escaped. Michal took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at his head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its, at its head. And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemies go? So that he was escaped. And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth at Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as the head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul that he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came into the great well that is Saku. And he, and he asked, Where is Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth at Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also as he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked 
all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, teach us who you are, who we are, and our dependence upon you through your word. May it penetrate our heart, not just our mind. May it change what we love. May it change the way we respond for your glory. Be with us in these moments, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about 1 Samuel 18, and we saw where Saul was moving and changing. We, we talked a lot last week about how Saul was deeply in his insecurity, was lashing out. And we saw that he had all of these Machiavellian plots in place to try to kill David using friends and foes alike. Well, all pretense has now been cast out the window, and Saul is now in open hostility and making it known. This isn't in secret anymore that he wants David dead. And so that is where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 19. Now, last week as we talked, I know many of you have talked about, you know, how we can resonate sometimes with Saul and our insecurities and how that can turn us into places of bitterness and places of manipulation and places of anger within there. And how liberating it is to find our hope and our wonder and nothing but justification by faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But many of you may also have been hearing that and wondering, well, that's great and that's a wonderful sermon for the person who is struggling, the person who is berating other people, the person who is responding with manipulation. But what about me? What about the victim? What about me who is having to endure this from my spouse or from my coworker, from my, my mother, from my father, from my brother and sister, from my, from my coworkers? What about me? And dealing with this broken world where I see and I just feels like people are losing their mind. And they're coming after me. And maybe situations that at one point seemed like such a blessing have now turned into just torture and horrific. What do we do in a world that is broken... Not only are we broken, but we live in a world where broken people are responding to us. And as the old axiom says, hurt people do what? Hurt people. What if you're one of the people who's being hurt? What do we see within there? Scripture, it gives us an upper story and a lower story. We see an upper story where we see this larger arc of redemption that takes place. And we've been seeing this larger arc of redemption that is pointing us and leading us ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But within there, there's these lower, lower stories as well of difficulties and conflicts within there. And it's amazing how God brings them together for this beautiful tapestry. And what we're going to see within this and both looking at the upper story and the lower, lower, lower story that's going on, <coughs> we're going to see how God is at work, not only in redeeming the world, but 
in uniting us with his son through all of these situations and these difficulties. And so we're going to see three things that really take our attention off of ourselves, which is where we want to go in this. We want to, we want to wallow in pity and struggle saying, what has happened? But in these verses, what God does is he flips the script and takes our eyes off of ourselves and enables us to find comfort and peace in who he is and what he is doing. And we're going to see three specific things that God is doing. First off, we're going to see that God is a, is, is very present. He is a good and sovereign God, even in the difficulties. He is good and he is sovereign. The second thing we're going to look at is he is still, God is very powerfully present in all of these difficulties and trials and tribulations. But then we're going to end with talking with what is God's glorious purpose. And I use that word very intentious, glorious, to reveal who God is, to reveal his salvation and his wonder. First thing we look at, this is deeply important for us to understand when we're going through hardships, when we're dealing with broken people, when we're dealing with hurt people who hurt people. The first thing is for us to understand and to absolutely have this driven down into our hearts that God is good in his sovereignty. God is good in his sovereignty. God was behind David's suffering and his victories. He was behind David's suffering and his victories within there. So as we look, we saw quite clearly in chapter 18, we saw David constantly uh, receiving accolade after accolade. He was victorious in battle against the Philistines. And you saw that everyone was responding to him in love, except for Saul. We saw uh, Jonathan was responding to him. He had a, uh, formed a covenant with him. Uh, Saul's own daughter was turning to, towards him and loved him. And the people were loving him. And we saw over and again, he was victorious in battle. And it's clearly, it's easy to see how God was present in those victories, in those accolades. We see in, in verse 8, in this transition here, the, there was war again with the Philistines. And David went out and he had more success than all everyone else of, Paul, of Saul's servants. Yes, we can see. It's easy to see where God was present. But then things just turn sour in verse 9. And from this point on, Saul, Saul will be against David. They're not going to be reconciled at this point. Yeah, there's going to be some places where David kind of confronts Saul's sin later on and says, basically, I could, could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul will kind of give his normal form of repentance, which is, which is half-hearted and never anything more than temporary. But really from this point on, there's a sharp change in the relationship between Saul and David. And David is quite aware at this point that this isn't just a, a temporary madness that is at, at, wake, at place here. But rather, Saul now wants to kill David. His life is in danger. You might be tempted to wonder... Well, what about all the good things that have happened? Is this all for naught? What is going on here? Is, was God really in all of these other 
situations, we can look at this and we can say, um, where was God? Was, was all these things real? You see, a lot of times when things turn sour on us, when things go bad, when things go from blessing to curse, we can stop and look at it and say, well, was God in it the whole time? Was I just mistaken? Was I out of God's will? We can be part of a church and have years of glorious times where things went so well and then all of a sudden something happens and it kind of turns sour and we think, and those are the places where it becomes so hurtful because you remember all the good times where you saw God just so clearly at work and you wonder, what happened? And maybe it was a small group, maybe it was a ministry that you were part of, maybe it was a job that you were able to be part of, that uh, was such a blessing when it came, and all of a sudden it just turned south and sour. You begin to wonder, what happened? Did the bad guys just all of a sudden win? Did the, guy, the bad guys take over God, uh, God's plan and its purposes that was such a blessing and just turn them south and turn them sour? We can doubt and we can second guess. Do we interpret things? But one of the things that is very clear within this is that God is the one who is behind Saul's implosion. In other words, all that is taking place isn't accidental. And so this isn't a question whether or not what had happened previously was really God's will or what God was working. Yes, God was at work in all of those good things with David. And most likely, God was at work in all those things and those blessings that you recognized beforehand. But just because they turned south doesn't mean God lost his control over the situation. It doesn't mean that evil began to win. God is every bit sovereign and in control over this situation as he was before. And we see right off in the transition in verse 9, it begins not saying Saul just decided to turn his mind, but rather a harmful spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. This is, we've seen this now multiple times. Now, this causes us to look at this and wonder and try to figure out what is going on here. And this brings us into that very kind of difficult situation as we try to reconcile the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and human freedom. And we can get into lots of different theological discussions and we can have a nice little you know, debate and discussion about all this stuff that's going on. And we can throw out terms like middle knowledge or compatibilism or Calvinism and all these various things. But the reality that is taking place that is quite clearly seen here is two very clear realities. God is in charge. He is orchestrating all that is taking place. And Saul is following the evilness of his heart to do bad, to do what is harmful. And so we see a pattern that we can recognize from Scripture, really. Uh, For example, Joseph's brothers. When they sold him to slavery, we see this powerful statement as Joseph comes to him and says, you meant it to eat for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, God was sovereign. Yes, he used the evilness of their heart to accomplish his purposes. He didn't break their will. They did exactly what they wanted to do, which was evil. But he used the evilness of their heart to accomplish his will. 
And here in this turn of events, and, and, and David going from hero of the empire to rogue refugee uh, who's trying to find um, help and status outside of the blessing that he once occurred, we see God is every bit as in charge. He is every bit as in charge. Now, this is important for us to understand because when things go bad and difficult, it is important for us to understand God is still sovereign and working out his good purposes in this world. A lot of times in American Christianity, we want to respond to hardships and trials by saying, well, you know, this isn't really God at work. This is simply God allowing this to happen. And we believe that there's sometimes comfort in thinking that God isn't fully sovereign over the situation. But I would challenge you that there's actually far more comfort in understanding that God is in control, that he is orchestrating all things according to his good purposes. But the key to that is understanding that he is good. In other words, we need to have a rich understanding of who he is, his goodness and his trustworthiness in all things. And when we can do that and we can understand, we can look and see all that is taking place, even when it is hard, even when it seems to be a turn of events, we can look at it and say, I have not left the good plans of my sovereign God. He is in control. Now, when we get to that place, that enables us to move to the second important realization and truth. When we can see that he is there and that he's good, it reminds us that he is present in his purposes. He is powerfully present. God never abandons his children. God never abandons his children. We see this quite clearly. Even though the situation has changed, even though Saul has moved into open hostility, we see God is fully present in protecting David. We see it first in the first seven verses with Jonathan, his friend who had come into a covenant with him. Right? Uh, What do we see? Jonathan goes before David. Or goes goes before Saul to to protect David, to make his argument for him. He becomes an advocate for David, right? Uh, And then, as with his wife, uh, Michal, in verses 8 through 9, helps him outright escape the attacks of Saul. Excuse me, uh, uh, in verses 11 through 17. We see that God was with David in his ability to not be killed by Saul with a spear. And then we see it quite clearly as he takes refuge with Samuel and the prophets. Now, you may think, well, well, what's the big deal? You have a wife that's taking that for a husband. But actually, according to Old Testament scholar Philip Long, who's kind of an expert in this time period and area, this is actually very countercultural to that, to that time. In that time, it actually, people would have expected the wife and the son to take sides with the father. Not with David. And you see quite clearly now as not only you have the messengers of Saul come and they are quite clearly stopped by the Spirit of God 
no human intervention. And then you see something else very interesting. When Saul himself goes up, not only is he controlled by the Spirit, but he is forced by the Spirit of God to remove his royal clothing. Now keep in mind, there is a lot of symbolism in that. We saw in chapter 18, Jonathan willfully took off his vestiges of his being a prince of Israel and gave them to David. Saul has not wanted to, but is actually being forced to strip himself of his royal clothing and recognizing that he's being removed as king. There's a lot of symbolism that's involved within that. But what you see throughout is despite the fact that David is on the run, he's experiencing this time of tribulation, God is sovereign through all of it. Yes, David has done nothing wrong. In fact, in Jonathan's uh, argument towards Saul, it makes clear, he's saying, hey, David was a loyal uh, servant of yours. He's done nothing against you. David was innocent in all of this. God was still protecting him through all of this. God was still present. While, yes, there was difficulties and hardships, he was still David's source of protection, his source of strength, David's refuge. You see, friends, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, though you may be going through hardships and difficulties, you can still trust that God will be your refuge. He will be your strength. He will, as Psalm 91 say, place his feathers over you. This week, I was at the bedside for a second time of one of the most godly men I know in the time of a year, in the time of 12 months. Not too long ago, I was at the bedside of Weldon Neal. This week, I was at the bedside of Doc Dingworth. You saw two men who lived long, long, blessed lives, both of them into their 90s, both of them remarkably godly men, but yet, as I sat at their table, you saw these two powerfully spiritual men at a place of absolute weakness. Of course, Weldon died, and honestly, Doc probably won't last a whole lot longer. Both of them, as I sat by them, both of them, for the most part, unable to respond with any words both of them unable to open their eyes. And for both of them, I read Romans chapter 8. This incredible reminder that in the midst of their lives, because they are in Christ, they have a hope that will not be taken from them. That incredible promise that though they're in their weakness, and they were certainly in a place of weakness that their bodies had never been in, though they quite literally, their bodies could do nothing but groan, there's the promise that the Spirit was there 
taking those groanings as prayers before the Father and ending with an incredible promise that nothing will separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friend, in their weakest places of their bodies, that was a powerful reality and truth. No matter what weak place, no matter what place of turmoil or strength, if you are in Christ, you can hold on to that promise. He is present. He is there. You can call out to him to be your refuge, your strength. And when we understand that, that reality, because keep in mind, that still meant David was going to spend a long time running, running to caves, running to his enemies, the Philistines, and we're going to get into that, running for his life. But yet, through it all, he could be confident that God would be with him. Yes, the situation will continue on. Yes, there's not going to be a quick Disney ending that's going to take place in the span of about an hour that's going to end with, and they lived happily ever after. This is going to be years of difficulty. But the good news is, friend, we don't have to hold on to that in our lives, in our situations, for it to work out. We're going to see this Disney and they lived happily ever after. We don't have to put that kind of weight onto our rescue. Because we know that in Christ, he will make all things new. But at the same time, that doesn't move us into a place of cynicism. Where we can give up and say, well, you know what? Life stinks. I can just expect nothing. I'm just going to, and, and if I expect nothing, if I expect God won't be there, if God won't help me, I'll never be disappointed. And so we don't live in the Pollyanna, unrealistic world. We live in a world where we understand there's brokenness, but we also say, understand that in this broken world, Christ has come. He has de- took upon himself the cross. He has defeated death, sin, and the grave. And yes, he unites us with Christ in that death, in that, and we promise that he was called us to take up our cross. There is hardships, but the other end of the cross is resurrection. There is hope. There is always hope. And that leads us to the third and the final aspect. The final truth that we see play itself out. And that is this, God's glorious purpose. You see, in his sovereignty, in his presence, he is always up to a purpose. Now, let me be very clear. I in no way, shape, or form will be able to say explicitly exactly what every purpose will be in your suffering. And frankly, neither will you. Sometimes there will be times we'll be able to look at and say, hey, you know, this is what God was doing in this. We can see that as we hold on to this story, we'll be able to see how God in an upper story was at work in, in, in David's life, both to put him into a king and to remove Saul as king. But not only that, in the upper story, what God is doing is for his anointed one, he is going to place him in a place of persecution and suffering. And in that place of suffering, we will get Psalms. 
And in those psalms, we will have messianic psalms where David is crying out in his spirit and God is foreshadowing and anticipating what the ultimate Messiah appointed one, the ultimate king will do and feel and experience in his enthronement and in the cross. That's the upper story. God's purposes. But in the lower story, there's also the sense in which God is at work in David's life, drawing him ever closer to dependence upon him. You see, what is the purpose? Well, we not, may not be able to give all the specific examples. What we can always say is what God will be doing in moving into the hurt is uniting us with Christ. Drawing us ever closer into satisfaction and hope and love with our Lord Jesus Christ. He moves us into a place in which our satisfaction comes only from him and him alone. And so we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, explains it so well in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. through four. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seat the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, what is this saying here? It is bringing in this powerful reality of union with Christ. You see, when we first come, become believers, when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that when he died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead, there's nothing more for us to contribute to our salvation. We simply place our trust in what he has done for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, to him to make us new, to give us the power to live for him. But in that process, what happens is we die with Christ We're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. But the key there is with Christ. And that's what Paul is saying there in in Colossians chapter 3. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of of God. So where is Christ? He is risen. He is ascended. He is defeated death. He is at the right hand of God. Now he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are earth, for you have died. How have we died? We have been united with Christ in his death. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, you have been united with Christ. And as we are united with Christ, we are where Christ is with God. And we anticipate glory within that. Union with Christ. This is the ultimate goal of the believers. This is the ultimate goal of what God is doing. United with Christ. And uniting with Christ, that often means suffering as Christ has suffered. 
But once again, we suffer with hope because Christ did more than suffer on the cross. He rose again from the dead. And so we await with hope the resurrection power of God in our lives. What is that going to look like? Sometimes that resurrection power will be the death of sin in us. As more and more of our sin, of our self-reliance is crucified as we become more and more dependent upon him. Sometimes that will, that will look like us being able to love those who hate us, those who are persecuting us, just as Jesus did. Sometimes what that means is we'll become more dependent on God in faith and we'll become more and more like the children who are dependent upon God, just as Jesus was faithfully dependent on the Father throughout his life and his ministry we become people who are more and more like Christ, dependent upon Jesus Christ. What is the resurrection power going to look like? I don't know. And I can't say what it's going to look like in your life. But I can say, when the Spirit is in it, it will bring life. That isn't some prosperity gospel nonsense. That is the truth of the God who is at work in our lives, making us more like Christ. And so we celebrate that this morning with an act of communion. You see, a lot of times when we talk about communion, we're reminded of the fact that it points us to our salvation, what Christ did for us on the cross. He gave his body for us. His blood was shed for us. Yes. And that's a remarkable reality. But that is the beginning of the wonder of that reality because the reason we esteem this isn't just to remind ourselves of what God did for us, but rather to celebrate the fact that in Christ we have been united with Him. And so we take the bread and the cup into ourselves. To remind it, just as Christ died and was risen again, we have died with him to sin. And we anticipate his resurrection. Is a testimony that God was present with this world in its sufferings. And as you go through your difficulties, trials, you can trust that God is sovereign and God is present with you and all that you're going through. So I'd be invited to remind you as we come and we participate in communion that you allow to remind yourself that God is present with you. He has forgiven our sins in Christ. He has given us the hope of resurrection and he is present in making us like our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is uniting us as a body and giving us a hope the great banquet of heaven by which we anticipate. Hold on to these elements this morning in hope to remind yourself that God is present. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, I'd ask that you not partake of the elements, but rather that you see and you submit to yourself to the sovereign God of love the sovereign God who gave his only begotten son 
not just to give you a get-out-of-jail-free ticket, but rather to unite you to himself, to transform every aspect of your life, to give you hope that cannot be taken away, to enable you to be a children, child of God who is no longer condemned, can say that nothing will separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ.